Welcome to It's Your Heart Protected, the podcast by the Boehringer Ingelheim and Lilly Alliance. In people with diabetes, heart disease and kidney disorders often coexist. The cardiorenal metabolic systems are intimately linked. In this podcast series, we hear from a range of experts involved in the care for people living with these conditions and learn how interconnected systems call for an interconnected approach to care. Hello, this is Dr. Carolyn Nam from Singapore, and today I will be hosting It's Your Heart Protected, the podcast episode entitled Type 2 Diabetes and Heart Disease. I'm a senior consultant cardiologist at the National Heart Center and professor at Duke National University of Singapore. Around the world, 50% of people with type 2 diabetes die from cardiovascular events, and those with diabetes are twice as likely to be hospitalized for heart failure than those without. In this podcast, we will address the importance of considering the heart in the treatment of type 2 diabetes, as well as reflect on guidelines that support this new approach. I am so pleased to have with me on today's podcast, fellow cardiologist, Professor Kosick Ray, and endocrinologist, Dr. Alice Cheng, both of whom have a wealth of experience in managing conditions of the cardiovascular and metabolic systems. So Alice and Kosh, a warm welcome. Could you start by introducing yourselves, Alice? Thank you very much, Caroline. It's a real pleasure to be here today with yourself and Kosh and greetings from Toronto, Canada. I am an endocrinologist and associate professor at the University of Toronto. Thanks, Alice. Kosh? Hi, Carolyn, and hello to Alice as well. My name is Kosh Ray. I'm a professor of public health and a cardiologist based in Imperial College in London. Thank you both. Okay. So let's dig straight into this, type 2 diabetes and heart disease. Alice, perhaps you could start with the perspective of an endocrinologist. So how do you explain to your patients with diabetes why they should even care about heart disease? It's a great question, and I think a very important one for us to do well as endocrinologists. And it actually starts at the time of diagnosis. At the time of diagnosis of diabetes, it's important for the patient to get a lot of education from a variety of healthcare providers. And one of the important messages we try to tell people is that diabetes can affect the whole body. And of course, there are things we can do to avoid or to prevent those things from happening. But of the systems that can be affected, the cardiac system is, of course, a very important one. And it's one that patients don't always think about when they think about diabetes. They tend to think about eyes and kidneys and feet, but they don't tend to think about the heart. So that certainly is an aspect that we need to educate our patients about. I usually do not share the statistic about the most common cause of death because that's usually not the best conversation to be having early on, but I certainly do talk about the effect that it can have but I always would like to emphasize that there are things we can do to help lower that risk. But it starts from diagnosis and making sure that our patients are educated about the concept. That's a great approach, Alice. And you know, it always surprises me. It's sort of something we take so for granted as cardiologists that diabetes is one of the biggest risk factors for heart disease. And yet, patients 
don't even link their diabetes to heart disease. I like the way you say you carefully communicate this. Could you give us an example of what you say? So I'll say to them that diabetes is a disease of sugar. And when there's too much sugar in the body, it sticks to things it's not supposed to stick to. And when it sticks to things for too long, it can in fact cause damage. Now, as you're aware, you've probably heard about things around the eyes and the kidneys and the nerves and the feet, but there are other systems where it can also stick and cause problems. And, and one of those is in fact the heart. And people often do not link the two, diabetes and heart disease per se. However, we know that diabetes is one of those risk factors. So it makes it all that much important that we do various things in order to lower that risk. And by doing that, we actually lower the risk of all of the problems that could potentially come with having the diagnosis of diabetes. So that's an example of what I would say, and I, I'd like to link the sugar piece to it, uh, even though, you know, technically, maybe not everything I said was perfectly 100% true. But conceptually, I think it makes sense that things are sugar sticking on things and therefore causing problems. I love it. Kosh, now, from a perspective of a cardiologist, how do you think about diabetes care in your patients with heart disease? How do you communicate the importance of sugar? Carolyn is somebody who started off as a sort of senior house officer, spending about a year doing lipids and endocrinology and diabetes clinic, where you know, you'd have files and files on patients with the complications of diabetes. You know, we knew obviously at that time it increases your risk of cardiovascular disease, and we have accumulated so much evidence that it requires a multifactorial approach. One of the things, I guess, as, um, as a clinician who over time, despite studies and trials, I've just not seen implementation and potentially patients understanding what it is that, particularly around self-care and adherence to medication, I actually think we get that initial interaction you can potentially scare people. I tend to look at it from the other side and use that as an, as an opportunity to try and empower them as much as possible. So as an epidemiologist, I would start with, we have made this diagnosis, or as you're aware, you have this condition. We don't know how long you may have had it for, but on average, let's say you know the person is age 40 or 50, a person with diabetes at this age loses six years of life. The good news is we can claw each of those years back, but it requires a whole host of different things, some of which we can prescribe, but that things that you will need to adhere to, and each of these matters. So it's not a case of excluding one for another. We need to start with lifestyle, avoidance of things like smoking, stopping smoking, and then there will be specific medications that improve your outlook. Some of these are related to lowering cholesterol. Even though you might not feel you have a high cholesterol, that's beneficial. There is blood pressure control. There are drugs that protect the kidneys, and there are drugs which also protect the heart that also improve glucose control. And long term, the glucose control is important because that potentially impacts on risk of complications 
like eyesight, like the kidneys, like your feet, for example. So all of these things matter. And as much as this might seem overwhelming at this point in time, the good news is you are starting early and you can change your life course, but it requires both you and I working together. Oh, I love it. I love it. So a holistic approach, bringing in the other cardiovascular risk factors, um, a little bit of scare tactic, but also ending on a positive note. I simply love it. And if I could pick up on one of the points you brought up, Kosh, my patients, when, when they find out they've got diabetes, they usually stare at me and kind of go, okay, so I have to eat less sweet stuff. That's all they think about is the sugar. I tend to have to reinforce to them that the sugar is one thing and, and you don't even feel the sugar. Just like you said, we don't feel the lipids. However, it's so important to look into that and treat that well to prevent the things you will feel like the heart attack and heart failure and stroke and so on. Alice, I mean, I know it's a bit unfair, you know, um, two cardiologists here, but what do you think? I completely agree about the concept of the multifactorial approach. I, I think at, at the initial diagnosis, as I'm explaining to the patient, I do talk about the sugar and emphasize that probably because that's a, a place from which they're familiar, right? They, they have this diagnosis of diabetes. They're thinking about sugar. However, I completely agree with what's been said. We also need to address other risk factors, and that's an opportunity to do that sometimes on that first visit, sometimes on a subsequent visit, but certainly within a very short period of time, the entire package has to be dealt with. And in Canada, for example, our Diabetes Canada guidelines have promoted the concept of the ABCDESs, A1C, blood pressure, cholesterol, drugs to protect the heart, exercise eating, smoking cessation. And we've been promoting that concept for years now, in order to remind everyone about that multifactorial approach. Oh, that's great. A, B, C, D. Was there an E and then an S, right? Yes, correct. <laughs> Thank you. That is really nice. Now, I, I have to admit, as, as a cardiologist, I didn't really pick up diabetes guidelines, except to look up how exactly do I make the diagnosis, until the last few years. And that's because I think there's been a great shift and an almost meeting of both sides of endocrinology and cardiology. Would you agree? I'd, I'd love your thoughts, Kosh, on, on that. I mean, notice that when Alice started the A, the A was still A1C. Hmm. What is your thought? And, and do you think guidelines have shifted? Yeah, I mean, so to do that, I think you've got to really reflect on the history of trials. So diabetes is a disorder of glucose metabolism, and that's how you define it. And we know that people with diabetes have bad outcomes, largely from cardiovascular disease, but a whole host of other things as well. So it made a lot of common sense to go after treatments that lower or improve glucose or glycemia, and as a result would translate into improvements in cardiovascular events. But those largely had been disappointing. And there are several reasons for that. One, the treatments we had, any potential benefits could be offset by other adverse effects from the therapies. So negating some of that benefit, it could be that we didn't lower a cause sufficiently. The treatment duration could be insufficient or a combination of these. And so when you look at 
those early trials, the first five outcome trials, even with the 1% improvement in HbA1c, you were basically preventing about two to three cardiovascular events per thousand per year. And because we then started to see that potential drugs that became available for glucose lowering could have potential off-target effects, so, so drugs either have on or off-target effects, and the beneficial effects could be on or off-target. And because of that, we were actually forced into this whole area of doing principally cardiovascular safety trials. So now these were not being done in a scenario where you're trying to see, is there a big difference in HbA1c? But you were just essentially assessing, when I give this drug compared to placebo, do I cause harm? Because if you didn't cause harm, it was a great add-on for HbA1c improvement and you got that safety data. During that journey, we actually turned up a couple of classes which not only lower glucose but actually largely independent of that most likely have really important cardiovascular benefits and that's really what's changed had we not had that we wouldn't necessarily have gone looking with those designs and that's really been a sea change because it's a little bit like when you have your heart attack or you give a patient a statin irrespective of their LDL cholesterol. You, you, know, you don't do a test of platelet function. And that's really the big sea change in mentality to thinking about these things now, which is there are treatments that could change disease course. Totally love the way you put that. And Alice, I mean, was it as astounding the things that have changed and the way guidelines have evolved was it as astounding from the endocrinology point of view it was it it definitely was i think whenever one gets asked what have been the major changes in the last not even 10 years but in the last number of years in diabetes management it would be the recognition of the importance of cardiovascular renal protection we knew that all along, but the greater emphasis on it has definitely arisen and greater direction in terms of choice of therapies and how to protect our patients. So absolutely, I completely agree that it has been a, a true paradigm shift and one that we need to do our best to encourage our colleagues and our patients to, in fact, do. Uh, because as always, the implementation of data is the difficult part. The collection of data, obviously, is a tremendous hard work. But once it's established, it's how do we put it into practice? That is often a, the greatest challenge. So true, the implementation. And so if I could ask you to comment in greater detail, Alice, on uh, perhaps the actual changes that have occurred in the diabetes guidelines from the U.S., and then similarly, Kosh, from the European point of view, could I ask you both to do that and maybe starting with Alice? Sure, sure. So on the diabetes side of things, you can, you can imagine there are a number of guidelines from around the world, but one of the international ones that get used very popularly, the ones from the American Diabetes Association in conjunction with the European Association for the Study of Diabetes. And their latest iteration of their consensus statement is to still have metformin as first-line therapy, however, recognizing that independent of the A1C, for certain individuals with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease 
or with heart failure or with chronic kidney disease or those at high risk, and they clearly define the, def- the high risk in that case of cardiovascular disease, that in those four types of individuals, there are clear recommendations of what antihyperglycemic therapies to add in order to provide additional cardiac as well as renal benefits. And then for those who do not qualify for one of those four categories, then there continues to be discussion about if weight is most important, what to choose, if cost is most important, what to choose, et cetera, sort of the the traditional way that we've helped our patients make decisions about antihyperglycemics. So the, the shift has been the concept of independent of A1C in those groups of patients where we have the strongest data. Amazing. It's actually reminding me of the shift in lipid guidelines, too, that we don't need to really focus on the LDL per se. Huh, Kosh, would you say that? And maybe also comment on the European diabetes guidelines? Thanks, Karen. I think that you start with, and it's a really difficult one, isn't it? When the patient comes in into ER or ends up on ICU and connected to a whole host of machines, and you can see you know, the SATS machine, they're on a ventilator, etc. It's not rocket science to actually say, this is a high-risk patient that is pretty ill. Now, most of these other patients that are stable, that walk in, we are having to make our best guess. And there is always this, you know, we're all taught about first do no harm in medicine. So we often think about treatment initiation, but we don't often then think about treatment up titration. We polypharmacy, you know, you it's that sort of risk of what's the right and if I can, if you can excuse the pun, the sweet spot here and getting that right. And that's really difficult. One of the things in, in cardiology that we have had to do for many reasons, largely because we have had, and this is not meant with any disrespect to any other specialties, largely because of things like infarct survival, survival trials. We, we've had a lot of studies based on these sort of harder outcomes. And therefore, as a result, what we've done is to think about, we can't actually give everything to everybody, but we're thinking about some kind of triaging. And so we have used various risk scores or estimates, crude or otherwise. And one thing that was done last year with the ESC, EASD update was this separation into those people that a cardiologist might meet for the first time or a physician might meet for the first time with diabetes. And that's the first encounter. And there are those people who already have diabetes and are receiving some form of treatment. And because metformin largely has been that first drug, the go-to drug, that's how we kind of separated them. But in each of these groups, the idea is that the person with diabetes is not low risk and is at least at moderate risk, and therefore is either going to be in a moderate risk, high risk, or very high risk category. And that's based on various things like end organ damage, So renal disease, for example, retinopathy pushes your event rates up quite a bit. That then pushes you into a higher risk category if you've got additional cardiovascular risk factors. And for those people in the highest risk group, thinking about 
early initiation because the problem with guidelines is the more complex they are the harder they are to interpret the less likely you are going to see implementation in clinical practice come back in 10 years time and if i'm going to have to go through 15 steps it ain't going to happen so this was really a simple way of saying assess risk if you've got these measures of very high risk high risk think about therapies that will modify disease course and potentially lead to better outcomes, you should after that also look at the HbO1c, but that's you're going to do that after starting the first drug if you don't achieve adequate HbA1c. And you know that the classes for obvious reasons were GLP1s and SGLT2s because those are the classes that have shown that benefit. Um, recently in multiple studies. And amongst the people already on metformin, you had the same classification, but you weren't chasing the HbO1c. It was a case of, by the way, don't forget to add these drugs if you've assessed risk. And in theory, the, the HbO1c will come down. But if you still have residual elevated HbA1c, then you can do X, Y, and Z. So that was a really practical approach, I think, to aid implementation, because you know we do see really almost single digits to just about double digits use of these medications in those very high risk groups. So risk stratification, um, simplifying, and focusing on implementation. Alice, what do you think about the whole issue of metformin? Is it first line? I found it very interesting that you emphasized that HbA1c was not the first step anymore. And Kosh is the one who said, but HbA1c still matters. It's it's really nice to see that coming from across the, the specialty. But maybe back to you, Alice, about um, the question of metformin, first line therapy and diabetes. I will freely admit that metformin is very much a sentimental favorite. It's a, a very old friend that we have had for decades, very comforting, effective, inexpensive, safe, and also background therapy for those very studies that have in fact shifted the way that we approach type 2 diabetes management. So for all of those reasons, metformin has remained top dog, if you will. However, there is a recognition, though, that we don't want metformin to be a barrier. That was never the intention. And unfortunately, it can be a barrier in that someone places a patient on metformin, their A1C reaches target, and then without assessing for comorbidities, that patient is left on metformin alone for a number of years until that A1C drifts up. So we do want to get away from that. We don't want metformin to be a barrier. But I feel like metformin, though, is still a complementary therapy, along with outcome-reducing therapies, because achieving A1C is still important. So to me, the concepts are complementary and not competitive. It's not that you have to choose between one or the other. You want to achieve both. You want to provide outcome-reducing therapies in addition to achieving the various targets that we have in place. For example, we don't ask people to only eat healthy or do physical activity. We ask people to do both. That concept needs to get out there. Kosh, I'm going to let you respond to that, but also I want to throw one at you. 
You know, it seems that now if we're going to risk stratify uh, patients with diabetes, you know, if they have heart disease, for example, we may be the ones having to change these therapies. We as cardiologists are not used to that at all. I cannot tell you the number of times I've heard from colleagues or even just heard doctors tell patients, you know, no, 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 your, your, your endocrinologist will take care of that. I don't touch those medications. What do you think of that? And how are we going to affect and implement change among the cardiology community? Having outcomes data is extremely helpful for cardiologists because essentially we don't really do much to change numbers or, I mean, occasionally we're obviously doing things for symptoms, but we, you know, that's not how cardiology has been. So it is an easier sell to get cardiologists involved as to why I should do something like this, why I should be at that point. We need to remind our colleagues, each touch point with a patient is an opportunity. If you don't take that up, somebody else may not. So it's an opportunity for change. You know, we really shouldn't be waiting for somebody else and pass the buck in that situation. So I think we've done a great many things in our careers that we weren't used to, that were the first ones, whether it be beta blockers in heart failure or so forth. Then the other thing I think is then what's the barrier? Well, the barrier, I think there's, that's where there's a huge education piece that's needed. And the barrier is often fears of hypoglycemia because most cardiologists are going to see people with prevalent cardiovascular disease. We remember from medical school and sick patients on coronary care units about the dangers of hypoglycemia for arrhythmias and so forth. And there's a bit of education that's going to be needed about these newer therapies that risks of hypoglycemia are actually really, really low. It's those that are driving it rather than the drugs per se. So it's remarkably safe. So I think those are going to be really the key points. The thing to really remind them is that with many of these things, it's a question of starting and it may be to sort of work more closely with, with colleagues in, in diabetes and endocrinology because it's possible that a patient interacts with a cardiologist for a specific cardiac-related symptom and you find the diabetes as an incidental finding or during investigation. But the pathway may not then lead back to the endocrinologist. It may be back to GPs or primary care. And often that referral, that decision to implement something that's going to change their life course doesn't happen for many, many years. And that's a missed opportunity because over that time, disease progresses unless you grasp it. So it's a real opportunity there. The other thing to think about is when you see those patients who are coming in on things like metformin, you know, previously cardiology would often think about referring those people if the HbA1c was very high well, actually, now you're not going to really do much harm adding in these drugs because you're not going to make them hypoglycemic because the HbA1c is so high in the first place. But don't let them walk out the door until you've had that consultation and thought about it. That's really how we should change our thinking. And, you know, we need to move away from this conveyor belt medicine of cardiology and think much more about prevention. You know, have healthcare systems that preserve health and not treat disease. Love that and love the partnership with endocrinologists. And guess what? We've got 
the brilliant, one of the most brilliant endocrinologists on the line now. So Alice, you have to tell us, what do you think about non-endocrinology specialists um, starting these medications, be they in general practice, in cardiology? Do you have advice? I love it. I love the idea of every touch point being an opportunity, regardless of which specialty is necessarily seeing that patient. It does not matter if we are talking about primary care or nephrology or cardiology or endocrinology. It should not matter because what matters is what's going to help the patient. And everything is linked. So absolutely, I have zero issue with colleagues from other specialties implementing what we know from the very strong data of therapies that will reduce outcomes. I think our role is to educate each other and to implement things safely. That is the most important piece. And and it actually makes me very happy to listen to Kosh and hear him talk about the times at which one needs to be more cautious or at least consider what other therapies they're on, because that's exactly what needs to be done. And our, our jobs are to educate each other about these things. So I have absolutely no problem with sharing, because I think these therapies, again, may have started in the diabetes endocrinology space, but we, we are nice people and we're happy to share. Well, thank you, Alice, for your faith in us and for really emphasizing educating each other, which is exactly what we're doing on this podcast. I can't believe how quickly time has passed. This has been such a brilliant conversation. I'm going to just let both of you share some closing thoughts uh, before we finish. And perhaps Professor Koshik Gray first, and then Dr. Alice Cheng. Kosh? Thank you, Carolyn. I think it's great that there are opportunities now for cardiologists to really use the interactions with patients as an opportunity for change. And I'd encourage my colleagues to get much, much more involved because these treatments that have emerged really are effective and we shouldn't miss out on the opportunity for change. And the real challenge is around implementation and not delaying implementation of evidence-based treatments. Alice? So I would end off by reminding people that it is complementary and not competitive, the concepts of outcome reduction and achieving targets, of which, of course, A1C is one of the important targets. Our goal is to help the entire patient and reduce complications. That's why we do what we do on a daily basis. So we need to work together in order to achieve that. And educating the patient, of course, is absolutely critical to make that happen. And that link between heart disease and diabetes needs to be taught and with an emphasis, though, on the fact that we can do something about it and make significant change. Thank you so much, both of you. It has truly been amazing hearing from both points of views and reaching a a similar conclusion where the patient really takes front and center and the prevention of heart disease and type 2 diabetes also emerges as important. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to the It's Your Heart, Protect It, the podcast by the Boehringer Ingelheim and Lilly Alliance, episode on type 2 diabetes and heart disease. 
where Professor Carolyn Lamb was joined by cardiologist Professor Korsik Ray and endocrinologist Dr. Alice Cheng. Don't forget to click subscribe or follow to listen to our next episode.